The complex task of making a confident diagnosis of interstitial lung disease is a real challenge for clinicians as symptoms often mimic a wide range of medical conditions. Visit the ATS ILD Education Center for educational tools and resources that are designed to help improve patient outcomes with an accurate and early diagnosis. Our latest resources include the Idiopathic Pulmonary Fibrosis Primer, the Progressive Fibrosis Interstitial Lung Disease Primer, and the Connective Tissue-Related Interstitial Lung Disease Primer. Visit thoracic.org slash go slash ILD Education Center to learn more. That's thoracic.org slash go slash ILD Education Center. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today we'll be discussing a paper published in DHS Scholar entitled Flattening the Curve, Minimizing the Impact of COVID-19 on a Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Training Program. And we will be joined by Dr. Bashak Shuru, the author of the paper. Dr. Shuru, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Would you mind introducing yourself? Um, sure. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. As you said, I'm Bashak Turu. I'm an associate professor of pulmonary and critical care at the University of Washington and uh, the program director for our pulmonary and critical care fellowship training program. Uh, we're going to talk about a piece that was actually published in, in May 2020, in the beginning of the pandemic, and it was an invited piece for DHS Scholar. Can you can you tell us ab about the beginning of the pandemic for the, the fellowship training that you direct in Seattle and, and how this all started for you? Um, sure. So our um, hospital had actually started preparing for COVID in late 2019. But even in January and February, we were thinking about COVID as an infection that was acquired abroad. So our screening measures were really focused on looking for a febrile illness in a patient who had recently traveled to China. Um, and the first case was identified in Washington in, in late January. The first patient um, died on February 29th that was not at our institution. And on March 5th, I got a text message from one of my fellows who asked if I had time to talk. And when I called him back, I learned that the medical ICU team had recently admitted an elderly man from a skilled nursing facility with respiratory distress. And this patient had elected not to undergo intubation. He was managed with non-invasive ventilation overnight and his family requested a focus on comfort oriented care. And he actually, he died by the next morning. He had a very short hospitalization. And this was now four or five days later. And my fellow was calling because the intern and the night attending who had spent quite a bit of time in this patient's room had both developed fever and sore throat that day. And that was a really terrifying moment. What my fellow said was, I'm worried that this patient actually died of COVID-19 and I'm worried that our whole team has been exposed to this virus. Um, and it was frightening because we didn't know how COVID spread at that time. We didn't know who was susceptible uh, to disease at that point. And ultimately, this was the beginning of an outbreak in a long-term residential care facility where 43 people died. Um, so that was the start of the pandemic for us. And I just wanna say we were fortunate in a lot of ways. That outbreak was really an early warning signal for us to start preparing. 
But I think it's, it's important for folks to understand that Seattle never faced the overwhelming wave that we saw in other places in New York City several weeks later in Brazil, et cetera. Um, but that was our start. Wow, that's, that's a, an amazing story. And I think we were all, even everyone was prepared in some ways, I think, and, and still a lot of surprises could happen to us. Uh, so it's great to see how you, how you turn that experience and that surprise into a, a well-developed plan. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the reaction to this piece in 2020 and, and what's different now, almost a, a year and a half later and a, a couple of other surgeries after? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, this piece, we, we really focused on, on the crisis. Um, you know, I, I wrote about how we approached clinical training and schedules and education. And I, I would say most of those things were primarily impacted um, at the height of the, the pandemic. And in some ways, things have gone back to normal with our clinical care and our, our education. I think the piece we'll, we'll probably talk about at the end is, is really the well-being piece. And I, in many ways, I actually think that's harder now than it ever was in the spring of 2020. Yes, I agree, especially in places that have uh, seen second waves that were actually uh, worse than the first one. Uh, absolutely. We, we actually have just gotten past our fifth wave and we had more hospitalizations during our fifth wave than we did in any of the others, which is it's hard to believe. Yes, and I, I, I was really impressed and, and I thought it was uh, great and a strong component on, on your crisis plan, how you deal with communications uh, with your team. And, uh, and you say it was based on recommendations from the CDC uh, on how to communicate during a crisis. Can you summarize the principles of that strategy? Tell us what were the biggest barriers and facilitators to implement those principles in your communications plan? Sure, I think you know, there's, there's a lot of crisis um, communication uh, you know, frameworks out there. Um, I like the one for, from the Centers for Disease Control that's really based on, on six principles, like you said. Um, the first principle is to be first. Um, and that's really referring to needing to communicate information quickly when there's um, a lot of change going on. The second is to be right. Um, and the principle there is that accuracy really establishes your credibility. And that means sharing what you know, sharing what you don't know, and then how you're going to fill those gaps. And I think sometimes those first two are at odds with one another, right? It's hard to, to be first and be right at the same time. And finding that balance of making sure you're getting out accurate information um, while also getting it out in a timely fashion is, is very challenging, as we found out at the, at the height of a pandemic. The third principle is to be credible. Um, and the principle there is just that honesty is, is paramount even during a, a pandemic. Fourth is to express empathy. I think it's really important to acknowledge fear, chaos, suffering, addressing how people are feeling in that moment. The fifth might be my, my favorite, and that is that you wanna promote action. Um, you wanna give people meaningful things to do. I think that's something that calms anxiety. It gives people a sense of control um, when I think there's 
a lack of control otherwise in your life. And we did that a number of ways. We had um, senior fellows who were on their research blocks actually work with our clinical leaders on, on ICU processes. Um, they wanted to be involved and it gave them something to do, something very tangible to do. We had some of our clinician educator fellows partner with faculty to create just-in-time training tools that were focused on teaching critical care to the non-intensivist, recognizing that we were having family medicine docs and dermatologists coming to, to volunteer to work in the ICU. And then the final principle uh, is to show respect. And uh, how was implementing those, um, those principles into your plan? I mean, if you were to give people a tip how to, what are the biggest barriers and, and facilitators to, to make it really happen? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the biggest challenge with communication is clarity. Um, and I, I think that's really hard when you yourself don't have clarity, right? When um, we don't really understand what's going to be different in an hour or in a day. And I think, early on in the pandemic, things were changing on an hourly basis sometimes. I mean, we had hospital policies. We'd, we would get emails from administrators saying, okay, now we're doing this with personal protective equipment. And then several hours later, okay, now we're actually gonna switch plans and we're gonna do this instead. Um, so I think trying to avoid overwhelming people with information, trying to add structure to that information, um, we really tried as a, a program to summarize information as much as we could for fellows. Um, you know, I got a ton of emails during that time, mostly from our division, our department, the School of Medicine. But for our fellows, they were actually getting bombarded with messages from the four hospitals that they rotate at, four different hospital systems, all sending messages at once, sometimes conflicting. So trying to find a way to really streamline that information, I would say, was probably the most important thing in terms of communication. Yeah, it must have made a big difference, I think, having, having someone help you combine all that information coming from, from different sources. Exactly. Filter it, curate it, give fellows what they need to know, and, and then try to filter out the 90% of information that might not be applicable to what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned in, in your piece that early in the crisis, the trainees were restricted from caring for COVID-19 patients, and then that needed to change as the number of cases increased. Uh, can you tell me what was the reaction? And I ask you this because in, in my institution, the pulmonary critical care fellows were actually, uh, they wanted to be in the front line. They volunteered to come to the ICU. They wanted to, they were frustrated if they, they didn't get a chance to be in the ICU in the early beginning. But of course we had fellows from, as you mentioned, other specialties and, and these fellows were less enthusiastic. How how was the reaction from trainees with the with the restrictions and then the the need to to be in the front line? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think trainees' role in the crisis evolved very quickly. Our our medical students were were just grounded and told not to come to the hospital at all. And early on, our hospital leaders did restrict trainees from participating in the care of patients with suspected or proven COVID nineteen, uh, and that was very short lived. Um, you know, I think it was about a week. Um, and I think that was really driven by two factors. One, again, we didn't know how the virus spread and how we could best protect our healthcare workers. And so I think it came from a place of, you know, these are our trainees and we're responsible for them and, and we don't want them to get sick. 
And second, we were concerned about a shortage of personal protective equipment, right? Early on, we did not have enough PPE. And so I think our hospital leaders were thinking about how do we take care of the most people, recognizing that when trainees see patients, they're, they're never seeing them solo, right? They're seeing them and then an attending is seeing them afterwards. And that's doubling our use of PPE. So I think those were the factors that drove that decision. And again, that decision was incredibly short-lived. I think there was a recognition that trainees are an essential part of our workforce, that we needed their expertise. Um, and I think the, that reaction during that time, honestly, was relief. I, I think there was a lot of chaos and fear. We had trainees that said, you know, I have underlying um, medical conditions and I don't know if I'm at increased risk of contracting this virus. We had trainees who were pregnant and we didn't know at the time what the risk was for pregnant individuals. Um, but I think as, as that policy changed, as we had adequate PPE, um, you're right. I think our fellows were saying, I'm all in. This is what I trained for. I, I'm, I'm doing critical care because I wanna be on the front lines. Yes, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, being careful in the beginning and, and as we learned a little bit or we had more PPE, it makes a lot of sense to uh, slowly change. I mean, I, I think that if there's one thing we learned with COVID is we have to be flexible to change <laughs> rules and policies. Um, you, you also mentioned, and, and now I'm thinking more like uh, about the residents and, and uh, fellows, that it, your institution decided to have airway management for patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 to be performed by the most experienced attending anesthesiologists at each hospital. We did the same here in, in, in Sao Paulo, in my hospital. Uh, and then you also mentioned that the, the fellows had less exposure to procedures such as uh, cardiopulmonary testing. How do you think this scenario, and especially now that some time has passed, how do you think this scenario impacted residents and fellows and the training and, and uh, what did you do to, um, to mitigate this? Yeah, that's um, a great question. And I think we're we're still finding out what the impact of those changes were. And I think you highlighted two main things. One was an initial decision around certain high-risk procedures like airway management and, and bronchoscopy. And again, I think those decisions were really driven by um, wanting to protect healthcare workers and, and concerns about PPE shortage. Um, and those policies have, have changed. Now trainees, um, of course, participate in those procedures. But I think the, the second piece really highlights the bigger concern, which is just exposure to things like bronchoscopy, pulmonary function testing, cardiopulmonary exercise testing. I mean, there was a several month period where our pulmonary function testing lab was essentially shut down. Um, and I think there were fellows that were affected by this. Um, I think as an example, our fellows rotate through uh, the lung transplant service early on in their training. And during that month, they generally go to clinic for three half days a week. Um, it's also a service where they perform maybe a dozen bronchoscopies a week with transbronchial biopsies. Um, and during the spring of 2020, clinics were canceled. Bronchoscopies were canceled. Um, I think the procedural part was okay because our fellows perform bronchoscopy and transbronchial biopsies on you know, many other rotations. But I do think that some of our fellows missed out on particular clinical experiences. And I think time will, will tell about the impact, though I, I hope that the impact is going to be minimal. I think you know, we know there's always variability in clinical experiences for fellows. Um, you know, as, as 
an example of one fellow may place several Minnesota tubes for variceal bleeding during their fellowship, while another fellow maybe doesn't encounter that procedure at all. Um, so some of that I think is out of our control, but then we've also been able to um, make changes in the schedule to have fellows say, hey, you didn't get a lot of experience with transplant. Let's get you some additional time in, in transplant clinics so you can get that experience. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. I think, um, again, being flexible, right? Trying to, um, trying to offer this, uh, this experience in some other way, different from what we used to, what we had been doing for, I don't know, the past couple of years. And it's been a challenge for everyone, but I, I have the same impression here in Sao Paulo that we, we somehow, and we were, uh, because here in the South Hemisphere, we are different. We start residency in March, not in September. Oh, uh, so we were in a different time of the academic year when the when the first wave hit us, and and yet we 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 also found a way to try to minimize this impact. Yeah, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, that's one of the things very early on. Uh, I remember so many times saying, "I'm so glad that this started in in March, where you know we were already." Um, you know, eight, nine months into the academic year for our trainees, regardless of whether they're residents or, or fellows. So I imagine that was extra challenging at the start of your academic year. Yes, yes. But on the other hand, we had more time to compensate later. So again, I mean, look, to me, it looks like um, everyone had to learn to do something out of their usual. And, and I think there is, I think there is a, uh, a plus side to this. And and I also think that this is an experience for fellows and residents that it's something that it doesn't go into the normal curriculum, but I, but I suspect that they learned a few um, skills that, that are special during the crisis and seeing, seeing how leadership deal with the crisis also is something that, that could be, that could be, a, that could be something that is special for their career and a good thing. I, I couldn't agree more. I think when it is a bit more in the rearview mirror, I think it, it's still a little raw right now, but I think when we do get to that stage, um, I hope that we all look back on this in that way. I think, I, I think about faculty that I worked with when I was a trainee where the HIV epidemic was really a defining part of, of their career. I worked with folks who were in, you know, training in San Francisco or working in San Francisco at the beginning of the HIV epidemic and um, hearing about their experiences and how it kind of galvanized their career in infectious disease or general internal medicine or, or whatever it was. I hope that this is our equivalent. Yes. How long did you have to prepare and, uh, and how did you incorporate the ACGME conceptual framework for planning? And in terms of defining, when do you move from, from one stage? You mentioned there are three stages. And mm -hmm. how do you define when, when you move from one to the next? And so I, I, was, I was hoping that you could share how, how did you try to be ahead of things when we were at some points always behind things? Yeah, I don't know that we were ever ahead of things. I think things were changing so quickly. I don't know if we ever did get ahead. Um, but I think the the ACGME stages that you're you're referring to um, 
really start out with, just like you said, there's three stages. The first is business as usual, where certain things get suspended, like site visits and ACGME surveys, and maybe there's some use of telemedicine, but mostly our, our clinical care and our education looks the same. Um, stage two is increased clinical demands where the ACGME says fellows can work as attendings. Maybe there's going to be some changes to the educational programs. Um, the review committees will, will evaluate some of those disruptions. And then stage three is really pandemic emergency status where most, if not all trainees are, are moved to patient care. The majority of educational activities might be suspended. Um, and then there's still some re requirements that never go away. And those include things like work hours and adequate supervision and safety of trainees. Um, and we were in that pandemic emergency status um, for just 30 days. Um, and that was in uh, mid-April to mid-May. And those were really not defined by us. They came from our graduate medical education office. And I think our GME leaders really partnered with hospital leaders and were really closely tracking what was happening across our hospital systems with um, acuity, with uh, census, and, and deciding when do we need to, to call in more help. And to be frank, I think in our field, we were less affected than, than many other trainees were, right? I think um, in pulmonary and critical care, this is what we do. And so we had a lot of trainees that were kind of doing their normal day jobs. They were doing more of it and they were seeing more patients, but they weren't really working outside of their specialty. And that was not true for other specialties like family medicine or neurology or dermatology, where we saw folks who no longer had another job, right? Many of those clinics were canceled and those trainees were called in to help in the ICU. You mentioned that you began preparing for a significant burden on healthcare system, and but you also prioritize exceptional patient care and, and trainee education. What is, in your opinion, the recipe to provide excellent care and excellent trainee education in the midst of a crisis? Another great question. I, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that question even now, um, but I can tell you how we approach this, which is that, you know, fellows have this very interesting role. They are an invaluable part of our healthcare workforce, but then they're also learners. And what we wanted to prioritize was really making a concerted effort to maintain the educational mission, recognizing that, yes, our, our hospitals are blowing up and, you know, we do need a lot of hands on deck to help with clinical care, but you're also here to learn. Um, and how do we make sure that you're still learning in this process? Um, and again, here, I'll just highlight again that we were fortunate. We did not face the same strains on our hospital system that lots of places across the country and across the world did. And so we had the luxury of being able to do that. Um, I think that might have looked different if we had suddenly had, you know, 300 patients with COVID in our hospital at one time. Yes, but reading your reading a piece, uh, I can tell that the preparation was, I think, fundamental to to getting the results you got, and in terms of being intentional on how to how to deal with the fact with, with the unknown. Right, you didn't know you would be. Uh, not in as, as not a bad situation like New York, for example, but at, when we, when you were preparing for that, you didn't have that information. Uh, so I, I think one thing we can 
at least for me, bridging your piece we can take from this is I think being intentional and, and having this high bar in terms of uh, at least trying to uh, or aiming at excellent patient care and pairing that with excellent education. So I, I, I congratulate you for that. Oh, thank you. I mean, I think this, this was a lot of making things up as we got more information and in, in very kind of short time frames. But I, I do think we tried to really approach, you know, when we said, okay, how, how are we going to do this if we have you know, multiple surge ICU teams? And obviously there's a lot of different ways to do that, but starting from a place of saying, okay, what are our just our, our principles, right? Our principles are, you know, we need to make sure that people have respite, that people can't have extended periods of time working in an ICU we need to maintain that principle of education as a priority for fellows. Um, and so any solutions we came up with, I think starting with a place of what are our must-haves for that solution uh, and then working in that context, that was helpful. Yeah, that's that's just great. You mentioned that you, um, that you kept the case-based conferences, that you turned it into a virtual uh, format and that surprisingly attendance actually increased. After the 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 worst of the crisis was over or controlled. What aspects of that experience do you think you, you did you incorporate into your program? Are you is is the case-based conference still virtual? Are you doing it live? I think we're there now. I mean, you know, I think obviously the pandemic is far from over, but it does at least feel like the crisis component of that is behind us. Um, and we've elected to actually keep some of our conferences virtual and our case conference is an example of that. We've, we really have seen increased attendance. I think um, a lot of that is flexibility. Our case conference used to be at, at one of our, our main hospitals and fellows and faculty from all of the different clinical sites once a week would you know, descend on that hospital. We'd gather together in person for the conference. Um, but there's commute time that's involved with that, right? It, it definitely takes additional time to travel to go to that conference. And once we took away that travel barrier, we saw that um, additional folks could attend. We've also seen um, community providers, our graduates of our fellowship program, our colleagues who are working in the community, they've joined in on our case conferences and they add you know, a great perspective. Um, so I think certain conferences do work well with that format, and I suspect we will keep that for some time. Um, we've also found that other conferences don't work well at all um, uh, in a virtual format. And I think a, an example of that is, is a journal club. We used to have a, a translational journal club where two fellows would uh, present two articles, uh, senior fellows would cook, and then the faculty would provide uh, their home and, and provide beverages. And it was really a social gathering once a month. And it was a time where we all came together, fellows and faculty. And we talked a little science, but we, we really focused on just the community aspect. And when we tried to move that to Zoom, it was just a complete bust. It's hard to have a really natural conversation on Zoom. The social element is gone. Um, so we're still thinking about how do, we, how do we bring things like that back safely? I think it's great that you had increased attendance at, a, at that time uh, and kind of highlights, maybe we can, we can learn from what are the barriers. So commuting is a barrier. So how, how, how else can we deal with that? And I think it makes a lot of sense that we, we may keep a few things virtual, but nobody wants to stay all virtual uh, with all the meetings and stuff forever. So I think it's a great idea to 
to possibly kind of mix a few of these activities virtual and the other ones face-to-face. -face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're, we're having that conversation at our division level at our recent retreat. We spent some time talking about what do we want to keep that happened this past year? I think there are a lot of things that have been great. Some conferences being virtual has been great. I think telehealth has been great for providers, for patients. Um, so I think there, there are certain things we definitely want to keep um, and we just need to think about how to do that thoughtfully. Yeah, yeah. You also mentioned that you had a weekly video conference with fellows to address questions and concerns. Uh, how did you, how long did they last and, and how did you structure it? Was it open questions? Did you um, use this for first communicate some of the, I don't know, anything important you wanted to uh, to convey to fellows and, and what do you think are uh, effective strategies to, to maximize the impact of such meetings? Yeah, I think early on we wanted um, to have some sort of a venue where we could all gather together. Um, and I think the initial goal with those weekly conferences, well, there, there were really a few goals. One was, was really messaging. I think early on when those policies and procedures were changing so rapidly, um, you know, fellows had a lot of questions. What do I do in this situation? Um, you know, how do I, how do I manage this situation? Um, so we, we came together to first actually um, spend 10 or 15 minutes talking through, okay, here's what we've learned in this past week, um, both scientifically what we've learned about COVID and what we've heard from hospital leaders and GME leaders. And then give fellows really an opportunity to ask questions um, about how to handle particular scenarios. Um, and I, I think the other big piece of it was it was our one time to really come together and see one another, right? When once everything went virtual, we were no longer seeing each other face to face. And so just having a time when we could gather together with a small intimate group. Um, and it was, you know, a, a time that people would talk about how they were coping. Um, people would talk about things that were going on um, with their families or, um, you know, celebrating wins, taking a pause to celebrate the fact that someone just got engaged or had another, you know, big life event. Um, so I would say one piece of it was messaging and information focused. There was another piece that was just an open forum to discuss questions and concerns. And then a big part of it was really just coming together as a community. Yeah, that's so important. You also mentioned that you had, and I think this was in the in the case-based conference that you had a, the quote, the best thing that happened to me this week. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about this? Sure. So um, Andy Lux is one of our fa faculty members who runs our uh, weekly case conference, Seattle area chess grand rounds. Um, and it's usually three cases that fellows are presenting as unknowns to a discussant. And sometimes he'll have some teaching pearls that are um, sprinkled in throughout that case conference. And during COVID, um, he took those away and instead um, had people submit this is the best thing that happened to me this week. And so he would hold up a, a photo of, you know, maybe somebody getting engaged or, hey, look, somebody got a pandemic puppy. Um, and it was just a moment of levity, I think, in that conference. And again, a way for us to try to stay connected during a time of, you know, a lot of, of physical and social distancing. Yeah, it sounds great. I hope this one keep, uh, keeps happening. Uh, yeah. I hope so too, actually. We, we really did that at the, at the height of the pandemic, but I, I actually think it's a great thing for us to celebrate those types of things as a commun community. Yeah, 
I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about well, well-being of your fellows and 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 the team. You mentioned that you that you of course had a big concern about uh, during the the beginning of the crisis uh, how to deal with uh, health issues. And did you have an experience uh, with fellows getting sick, contaminated with COVID, and you actually told? The, at the beginning of this talk, you talked about the, the first cases you had. And then what did you, what were the measures that you could think of to provide support in such situations? I think this is a, a great question and very much the thing that kept me up at night early on in the pandemic was this concern of what if one of my fellows gets sick or needs to be hospitalized or dies? Um, and we were really fortunate to not have any fellows get sick. We had one fellow who had a, a false positive test that gave us a scare for a short while. And uh, again, it turned out to be a, a false positive. Um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Lakshmi Santosh, who's an associate program director for the uh, Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship at UCSF, actually wrote a great blog piece about this um, for our specialty organization, the uh, Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Program Directors. And, and she actually laid out 12 tips of, of how to approach this. And you know, many of those tips are focused on um, the importance of communication, communicating with the trainee, communicating with your team and your program coordinator, um, really thinking ahead to how you're gonna make up missed curricular time, how you're gonna support this fellow and make sure they have access to healthcare um, and, and really how to bring them back once once they're better and able to, to come back to fellowship. So I, I feel very fortunate to have not gone through this experience, but I, I think it's great that um, some of my colleagues have shared their experience and um, we now have a, a framework in case we're at, we find ourselves in that situation. Yeah, and that's a great tip. I'll, I'll look up on that article. And um, I think this was the fear for, for everyone, for all program directors yeah. across the world, right? It's just a, it was a horrifying feeling. I mean, I, that, that phone call that I told you about at the beginning of our conversation, I, I distinctly remember where I was standing and how I felt when my fellow said, I think our whole team has been exposed to COVID. It was, it was really terrible. Yes. And you also mentioned the concern with mental health issues and the availability of counseling. Uh, did you, did you actually see an increase in fellows seeking counseling during the critical times or did you see it afterwards? Mm, um, that's a, I think it's a great question. Uh, resident and, and fellow wellness is very much an institutional priority for our graduate medical education office. And we're really fortunate our fellows have um, access to free and confidential counseling services, although I, I don't know um, when and if people access those services. So I can't really say if more fellows sought counseling during that time, but I think there's no question that folks have been experiencing high rate, rates of burnout. Um, obviously, we work in a field where, where burnout was high well before the pandemic came. Um, and as I said earlier, I'm honestly more worried about mental health now than I was during the height of the pandemic. I think initially we saw people being all in, right? There was a sense of solidarity. Um, we all felt like, hey, we have something to contribute. We want to be on the front lines. And now people are just exhausted. Um, and like I said, this last wave has been particularly challenging. We've had more hospitalizations than ever before, including lots of young folks and pregnant people. And it's been really difficult to care for so many sick folks with the knowledge that the vaccination could have prevented so many hospitalizations and deaths. So I think from a mental health standpoint, um, I mean, I, I think we're going to 
we're going to see the impacts in our in our workforce in the coming years. But I, I think trainee well-being is is going to be a concern for years to come. Yes, I, I agree with you, and it's a we have a similar um, experience here in Sao Paulo during the, as you said, everyone was all in in the beginning, and but then everyone eventually got a little tired in terms of, yeah. in terms of, I remember thinking this was, this was going to last two months. Now I, I look back and I feel so naive, but in the beginning, it felt like it would be, it would be short-lived because it had been short-lived in, in China. So I, I think everyone had different expectations and, and I agree with you that it's on, on the bright side again, I think maybe we should, we should always and uh, have been prepared for, for mental health issues among residents and fellows. And uh, I think it's something that at, at least in my institution, if people were not so worried about this, now there's no way you can deny that this is a big issue and we have to we have to take this into consideration and, and be prepared. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there are, there are a lot of silver linings for sure. I think people used to come to work sick all the time. We don't do that anymore. That's a great thing, yeah. right? That's something we should keep from the pandemic. Um, but I, I think the, um, like you said, I think there, there was the sense of it's going to be over quickly. And so part of that was that we had these waves of hope followed by disappointment, followed by hope, followed by disappointment. And I think that's been challenging. And, and then I think there's also just the challenge of this isn't just something that affects us at work, right? Knowing all these people that have their personal lives have been affected. You know, they we had folks that were homeschooling their kids during this time and daycare closures. And, you know, it's just an, an additional layer of stress um, uh, on top of what you're seeing in the hospital. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dr. Choro, it was great having you here at Scholarly today. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story and uh, for, for giving so much details of, about this plan. Oh, thank you, Dr. Ferrer. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see notes from today's discussion, you can visit our website at atsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.